to Mama Mystery. I am, am your, your host, co-host, Austin. And I am your host, Kelly. And we are coming to you live from our bed. <laughs> Literally, we're filming a podcast in bed. Not that you needed to know that information. It's not pertinent. But you know what? It is interesting. And sometimes interesting information. Is it interesting? I don't know. Hank's in here, too. Hank's Hank, in here, say too. Say hello. He sniffed the mic. <laughs> He's the best. All right, Austin. Um, it is currently 1030 on a Friday. This is how we are spending our Friday night. And uh, I'm about to tell Austin a pretty crazy story that will likely give him nightmares. Are you nervous? Yeah. I don't, she, all she told me was it's scared? about some crazy woman that is crazy. And I'm just thinking, this is what I want to go to bed to. <laughs> Have nightmares. This of Kelly oh. waking me up going, I told you to load the dishwasher. I told you to load the dishwasher, holding a knife over my face. Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny that you know nothing about this story, but you just said those things. Oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> See, and if you don't already know, if, if you know what that movie is from, leave it in the comments. Yeah, if you know, leave it in the comments. Yeah, because I want to see if anyone knows what I movie that's from. I want to see if anyone knows too. Okay, anyway, today we are talking about Catherine Knight. Is this airing on a Monday? Yes. Happy Monday, everybody. Yes. So this is the story about Catherine Knight. Catherine Knight was born October 24th of 1955 in New South Wales, Australia. Catherine's mom, Barbara, was married to a man named Jack Ruhan, and they had four boys together, but Barbara started having an affair with one of Jack's co-workers, His name was Ken Knight, and this was a huge scandal in their small town as both of those families were really well known. So Barbara and Ken ended up having to move to another town so they could be together. Two of her sons went to live with their dad, and then the other two went to go live with their aunt in Sydney, Australia. So none of her kids stayed with her. This is Australian story. Yeah. So anyway, then... If you're in Australia, tag us in your story. (laughs) So then Barbara and her new husband ended up getting getting pregnant with twin girls, and the younger twin was Catherine. They also had an additional two children together. So four years later, in 1959, Barbara's ex-husband, Jack, dies, and the two boys that were living with him were sent to live with the Knight family. So growing up, Catherine was really close with her twin and also her uncle Oscar, but not really anyone else. She later claimed that she was sexually abused as a child, which continued until she was about 11 years old. She says that she was raped by members of her family, but didn't say which members and none of those included her father. Um, In 1969, Catherine is about 14 years old. When her uncle, Oscar, that she was super close with, commits suicide. This was devastating to Catherine. And meanwhile, things at home were getting really out of hand. Her dad, Ken, was an alcoholic who became very violent with Catherine's mother. He was known to use violence and intimidation to rape Barbara. And sometimes he would rape her up to 10 times per day. That pisses me off so bad to hear. I hate stories like this. Ugh. So Catherine knew this because Barbara was super open with Catherine about her sex life and how much she hated men and how much she hated having sex with her husband. I don't know why you would say that to your daughter, but ugh, I don't know. It's just, it just goes to show you like how messed up her upbringing was. So 
later when Catherine would confide in her mom about sexual things that her and her partners um, like wanted her to do, Barbara would just tell her to put up with it and stop complaining. Big yikes. I'm just shaking my head over here. Yeah. So in school, her classmates remember two versions of Catherine. Some remember her as a model student who was very pleasant, but some remember her as a bit of a loner who had violent outbursts. And she would often bully younger, smaller students and at one point assaulted a fellow student with a weapon. And another time she was injured during an altercation with a teacher who claimed that she was acting in self-defense. So these are clearly two very different personalities that we're talking about here. But you're starting to see, you know, just, I don't know, kind of like a little bit of her true colors. Right. Two completely different people. So Catherine left school at age 15 and got a job as a cutter in a clothing factory. And then the following year, she found her, quote, dream job working at a slaughterhouse where she was quickly promoted to a boning position and was given her own set of knives. Apparently, she was really good at this job. She enjoyed it very much. She would essentially just be cutting the meat off of bones of various animals, I guess. Hey, you know, whatever floats people's boats, (laughs) and I'm fine with people having a dream job to be a fry cook, if that's what you need, because the world needs fry cooks. But nobody has a dream job of being a cutting person boner at a factory <laughs> nobody says i want to grow up and be a boner in a meat factory maybe like a 12 year old boy no no like no nobody just does trying to make jokes no, i want to grow up to be uh, a boner yeah but not even knowing because nobody knows what a boner in a meat factory does <laughs> okay so that's bullshit go ahead all right so anyway she was super proud of this position and her set of knives oh yeah i'm a boner brother she had her own sparkly shiny knives that she would hang Above her bed, just in case she ever needed them. Okay, I... uh, She's getting uh, weird. We're getting weird. So at age 18, Catherine meets a coworker named David Stanford Kellett. Come over to my house. I have knives over my bed. You want to see my knife collection? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Kelly has this voice of, hey, mom, check out this dragon I drew. And it's completely irrelevant to this conversation. Go ahead. (laughs) So... David was known to drink quite a bit, and he was a bit of a rowdy drunk. He'd go to bars, get lit, then get into fights. But just for a little backstory on this, David's heavy drinking can be attributed to a pretty traumatic past. His best friend was killed right in front of him during a shunting accident while they were working together on a railroad. And in 1968, he witnessed a train hit a bus, which killed six children, and David helped rescue some of the injured kids and then pull some of the bodies from the wreckage. So I imagine that this would mess somebody up pretty bad. Um, He started to drink quite a bit and eventually lost his job on the railroad because he would fall asleep on the job, which caused several derailments. Then he got the job at the slaughterhouse where he met Catherine. So David and Catherine would get into violent fights of their own, but Catherine was never one to just stand down. She fought back, and David quickly realized that Catherine could hold her own and that she was not one to be messed with. So Catherine quickly became the dominant one in this relationship, and after being together for about a year, Catherine proposed to David. It's 1974, and they're getting married, They pull up to the ceremony on a motorcycle. Just close your eyes and just picture this. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. I'm telling Austin to close his eyes. Oh, great. Now we're in a lawsuit. David 
David is drunk as a skunk. So Catherine is actually driving this motorcycle and David is sitting on the back of the motorcycle, like hanging on to her as they pull up to their freaking wedding ceremony. And as soon as they arrive, Catherine's mom, Barbara, warns David by saying, quote, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her or she'll fucking kill you. The mom said this? Sorry. Yes. Catherine's mom said this to David. Now that is some marriage advice. That's going into their wedding. They should put that on a Hallmark card. <clears throat> disagree with a big old motorcycle and a bride and groom on the front of it i mean if you're into motorcycles that's cool i'm just not (laughs) i'm just not just not way to go kelly way to go kelly you just lost all our biker listeners you moron i'm just picturing this this couple with this like butch eileen warnos type of bride on the front riding in with her drunk as a skunk husband hanging on to the back and then the mom's like dude i don't think this is a good idea she's probably gonna fucking kill you bro like what circus is this? I guarantee you, you just lost all of our biker listeners. Oh, darn it. Okay, so on to the wedding night. Catherine and David are done consummating the marriage when he falls asleep. And this sets Catherine Way off. Way to go, you moron. <laughs> Freaking idiot, you went to bed. This sets Catherine off because apparently some of the friends or family at the reception were bragging that they did it like three or four times on their wedding night and she feels a little gypped. So she starts to strangle him like while he's asleep on their wedding night. He managed to fight her off that night and they stayed together. Hell yeah. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) She's just feisty. So this is just the norm for their marriage. It was very violent and turbulent. In 1976, Catherine is pregnant with their first daughter, and she's like super pregnant, okay, about to pop, when David comes home late from a dart competition. He had reached the finals, and the competition took longer than expected. So Catherine's pissed, and she decides to burn all of his clothing and shoes before he gets home. When he got home, she hit him over the back of the head with a frying pan, which severely fractured his skull. He mustered up the strength to run next door for help and collapsed as soon as he got there. The police were called and wanted to charge Catherine, but Catherine quickly changed her tune and started sucking up to David. She starts like flattering him and pleading to him and somehow gets him to change his mind and drop the charges. These people are both mentally ill. So in May of 76, Catherine gives birth to their daughter, Melissa, and shortly after, David finally leaves Catherine for another woman. He moves to Queensland just to get away from Catherine, but sadly left the baby behind. The day after he leaves, Catherine is seen walking down the street with baby Melissa in a stroller, and she's just like violently whipping the stroller from side to side. Someone notices this and calls for help, and Catherine ends up getting admitted to a hospital where she's diagnosed with postnatal depression. So she spent several weeks there before she gets released, gets Melissa back. But right after she's released, she takes, she takes two-month-old Melissa to a railroad, places her on the tracks, and leaves. Oh. So thankfully, a man was out foraging near the railroad, 
when he heard Melissa crying, he found Melissa and rescued her just minutes before a train passed. So Catherine gets arrested that day after she's found waving an axe in town, threatening to kill multiple people. And she gets readmitted to the hospital, but somehow she was able to sign herself out the following day. Oh my goodness. Insanity. Just total insanity. So just a few days later, Catherine gets arrested again after she slashed the face of a woman with one of her butcher knives. She demanded that this woman take her to Queensland to find David, but the woman escaped when they stopped at like a, like a, it's kind of like a gas station, but there's also a mechanic area over there. So by the time finally, um, by the time police finally arrived, Catherine had already taken another hostage, a young boy who she was threatening to kill with the knife. Police then attack her with brooms, which I don't fully understand, like, did you not have guns or those like hard sticks or I don't know. Brooms was what was written. This is, this is weird. This is okay. I get that this is sad. Okay. But I do keep thinking of the scene in wedding crashers where they're out front and the old lady (laughs) comes out shooting the gun and Vince Vaughn goes, this is the real world lady. You can't just go around shooting people. (laughs) That's what I keep thinking of. Waving an axe around in town. She's just, she's nuts. And earlier, all the dude wanted to do was play darts. (laughs) You're still hung up on poor David. Just coming home from a fun night. He reached the finals. He was so excited. the finals playing darts. Hell yeah, brother. Going to probably win a jackpot. $25 head home for the night. And, Comes home to that, getting a fractured skull. Yeah. And then gets sweet-talked back into not calling the cops. This lady's a looney tune. Go ahead. So she was taken into, oh my gosh, custody, and she ended up getting admitted to a different hospital. This time it was a psychiatric hospital, and while she was there, she told the nurses that she intended to kill the mechanic at the gas station because he was the one who fixed up David's car, which allowed him to leave. She told the nurses that she planned to kill David and his mom. But when David found out about this, he left his girlfriend and moved back to Aberdeen with his mom to support Catherine. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, you're just like... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Just keep going. So on August 9th of 1976, Catherine was released and moved in with David and his mom in a new suburb suburb of Brisbane. So this is Dart David. Dart David's back. Same David with the fractured skull and th- threats on his life and yeah. Same guy. I I don't get it either. I don't I don't get it either guys. I don't. But I'm going to talk about this at the end. I'm going to get my I'm going to give my final thoughts, okay, at the end. So anyway, she moves into the suburb um, of Brisbane with David and his mom. She got a job at another meat processing plant. And on March 6th of 1980, David and Catherine had another daughter named Natasha Marie. Four years later, Catherine leaves David and moved in with her parents back in Aberdeen before she found a house of her own to rent with her two daughters. At one point, she injured her back, so she was unable to continue working. She was put on a disability pension, and the government gave her a housing commission house in Aberdeen. Then in 1986, Catherine meets David Saunders. Things move pretty fast with these two, and David ends up moving in with Catherine after only dating for a few months. 
However, he kept his old apartment just in case, and something or sometimes he would go spend time there, which would piss Catherine off because she felt like he was living this whole separate life, and she began to get really paranoid about what he was doing when he wasn't with her. So they would get into fights, and she'd throw him out, and then she'd beg for him to come back, and it was just this super irrational, messy merry-go-round. I feel bad for the kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The girls getting to see this, like... Yeah, ultimately, they are the ones that suffer the most from all of this. So in May of 1987, during an argument, Catherine became so enraged. This part really bothers me. She became... animals in a bit. She became so enraged that she took David's two-month-old puppy. Oh, my gosh. I knew it had to do with animals because you and this is already effed up. And actually cut the puppy's throat right in front of David as an example of what she would do to him if he ever cheated on her. How did this rewind to when this lady was in the hospital and said, I was going to kill that mechanic? How how does she get away with getting out of the hospital? You know, I asked myself that multiple times while I was doing research on this. And I don't know. I don't know if she was just able to manipulate her way out by saying the things that she knew they wanted to hear. I know she was very manipulative. And to be so manipulative, you have to have some sort of level of, like, intelligence. Mm -hmm. So I I guess she just knew what to say. But um, after this fight settled down, Catherine excused her actions by saying she was just cranky. So that's why she cut the dog's throat. Um, yeah. So the following year in June of 1988, they have a daughter together named Sarah. David ends up finding them a house and Catherine decorates the place to feel real homey. She left no space uncovered. And I just want you to picture this house throughout the house. She used things like animal skins, skulls, horns, old animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. It sounds like, since you, since you already lost our biker listeners, <laughs> it sounds like a, a place you'd rent going to Sturgis. Like, I don't, I'm not into bikes either, really. Like, I think bikes are cool. I would have a motorcycle, but I'm not into, like, hell yeah, brother type bikes. I think she was just going for that farmhouse look. It's very trendy. Yeah. Um, she kind of missed the mark, but she tried. I don't know. So anyway, Catherine and David get into one argument that was finally the last straw for David. During this fight, Catherine hits David in the face with an iron and stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. So David is finally like, fuck this, I'm out, and goes back to Scone. He actually goes into hiding and refused to tell anyone where he was at so that she wouldn't be able to find him. Don't blame him. Yeah. But you can see that like her fights are getting more and more vicious, like... The length at which she's willing to go during these fights just keeps getting further and further and In further. a way, but not really. I a little bit disagree with you there. She fractured his skull over darts in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, and now she's stabbing him in the stomach with scissors. What's the difference? And she's cutting puppies' throats. Like, she's just a lunatic ever since the beginning. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, boy. So Catherine ends up hooking up with another one of her coworkers named John Chillingworth. <sighs> Sorry, John. They end up having a son together named Eric. And surprisingly, there's not as much drama in this relationship. That is until Catherine starts having an affair with another man named John Price. So she leaves John Chillingworth for John Price. She goes from David to David to John to John. 
So John Price, that's where we're at now. That's where this story is going to end. John worked in the local mines and had a couple kids of his own who really liked Catherine in the beginning. In the beginning of the relationship, things were going really well and they would go to social events together with like minimal drama and everyone loved John Price. He was a very well-liked guy. In 1995, Catherine moved in with John, and apart from some violent arguments, he said his life with Catherine was, quote, like a bunch of roses, end quote. That is until 1998, when they got into a huge fight because John refused to marry Catherine. So to get back at him, Catherine videotaped something that he had taken home from work. But here's the thing. What he took from work was not actually anything of real value. He took home an expired first aid kit that he took out of the trash. They were going to throw it away anyway, and he salvaged it. But Catherine sent this video to his boss, and they ended up firing him. John loved his job and had been there for 17 years. And so when he found out what Catherine did, he understandably kicked her to the curb. But a few months later, John and Catherine rekindled the flame, started things back up again, but John would not allow Catherine to move back in with him. Catherine, being the control freak that she is, didn't handle this very well. She is just not the type of person who you can say no to, apparently. Not equipped to handle life. Yeah, exactly. She pressured him to marry her, and this led to tons of arguments because he refused to marry her. She kept pressuring him, but he kept pushing back. If you're in a relationship and you're having to pressure someone into marrying you, why do you really want to marry them? Like, so you can say, yeah, we're married. What, are you going to feel proud of it? Right. they didn't even want to marry you? That It it becomes just a, a... ploy for what everybody else thinks, not for what you guys think. Yeah, it's never going to be a real genuine situation. if you don't want to get married, then that's fine. Live life together. Right. Learn to accept There's nothing wrong with that either. So every time they would get into these fights, John would tell a friend or a family member um, so that he could, you know, have someone on his side who knew his side of the story in case she went around and tried to twist it. But it got to a point where they got so tired of hearing it that they started distancing themselves from him. And I think everyone has one of those friends who just comes to them with like the constant drama that just never changes and they get kind of tired of it. So they're like, listen, you're kind of an asshole. Like you want my advice and you ask for advice, but you don't take it and you're in the same situation and I'm freaking tired of it. I think that's what his friends and family started to feel. Uh Everyone knew he needed to just leave her. But in February of 2000, Catherine and John got into a physical altercation and Catherine stabbed him in the chest. So John has had enough. He kicks Catherine out of the house. And on the 29th of February, he goes to the courthouse to file a restraining order against Catherine to keep her away from him and his children. Later that day, he goes to work and he tells his co-workers that if he doesn't come to work the next day, then it's probably because Catherine did something to him. So that night, John comes home from work and finds that the kids are at a friend's house for a sleepover. He goes to bed around 11 p.m. Catherine shows up and she lets herself in. She watches TV for a little bit before she heads upstairs to take a shower. And then she wakes up John to have sex and they end up having sex and then John falls back asleep. Oh no. Once John is asleep, 
Catherine. Way of like closure with herself, and now she's gonna do something crazy. So Catherine reaches over into her nightstand and pulls out a butcher knife. I'm predicting everything in this episode. You really did. You really nailed it. How many times do you think she stabbed him? Let's see if you can guess it. 17. More. 71. 37 times. The next morning, it's about 6 a.m., and John's neighbors are alarmed that his car is still in the driveway. When John didn't arrive for work, one of his coworkers was like, oh, shit, he just told us that if he doesn't come to work, something's probably wrong. So they go, one of the coworkers goes to his house to check on him. This coworker and one of the neighbors from next door went to ch- uh, went to the house to wake him up. They go to his bedroom window and they're knocking on the window to wake him up, but they're not getting any response. So they go around to the front door and that's where they notice there's blood on the front door. So they call the police and the police arrive at about 8 a.m. They break down the back door and what they find is worse than any horror you could possibly imagine. This is what I want to hear right before I go to bed. Let's hear it. According to blood evidence, it was apparent that John was woken up during the stabbing and tried to fight back. There was blood on and around the light switch where he tried to turn the lights on in the middle of the night to see what the fuck was going on. A trail of blood led to the front door and against the walls, you could see the blood was getting like closer and closer to the floor, which kind of indicated he was like losing his balance and probably started stumbling. He, he made it outside um, where it appears he, he tried to escape this attack, but at some point he succumbed to his injuries and either fell back inside or was dragged back into the house. After John died, Catherine does the unfathomable. According to the police, when they entered the home, they immediately noticed that the place is just a bloodbath. There is blood all over the place. They make their way into the home. And one of the officers is going towards the kitchen, but there's like this big curtain hanging in the door frame that leads into the kitchen. So when he uses his arm to move the curtain out of the way, he notices that his arm is wet. And that's when he notices it's not actually a curtain. It's skin hanging from butcher meat hooks from the door frame. He looks down and sees a torso, but it's just a torso No legs, no arms, or head. He gets a better look into the kitchen and notices that there are meals being prepared, like with veggies and potatoes and gravy. In fact, one of the pots on the stove was still warm, and the plates that are prepared indicate that a meal was like being served. Other officers are making their way upstairs when they hear someone snoring. Catherine was passed out on the bed sleeping. They tried to wake her up, but she she wouldn't wake up. So they picked her up and carried her outside to get her out of the house. What? They continue searching the house and find that the pot on the stove had John's head in it. And it was cooking. And there's other meat cooking and served on the plates as well. This person was what, serving person? up this man and was planning on serving him to his children. She was cooking him along with baked potatoes, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. Beside each plate was a note with a different child's name on it. There was also 
a meal that was thrown out back in the backyard. And investigators think that she threw it out after she tried to eat it herself and like couldn't stomach it. Lastly, she left a note to John accusing him of raping her daughter and his other children. But these accusations were later found to be completely baseless. Investigators later found that around midnight that night, which I assume is actually before she attacked John, she took his bank card and withdrew $1,000 from his account from an ATM. But this cash was never found, so police assume that she buried it or hid it somewhere, and it still hasn't been found. So Catherine was in a coma for a few days because um, she was... She was passed out because she tried to overdose on pills, and that's why they found her snoring on the bed. When she finally came to, she claimed that she had absolutely no memory of what happened, of course. She refused to give any answers as to what happened, but later came to accept the fact that she must have killed him and claims that she probably did it because he was so abusive for their entire relationship. Catherine's brother came forward and told investigators that she told him she was going to kill John and that she would end up getting away with it by just acting crazy. Initially in court, she pleaded not guilty, but then she randomly changed her plea to guilty during the trial. The judge thinks that she did this so that after the trial was over, she could appeal it by claiming that she was just insane and not in the appropriate mental state to plead anything. During the trial, she tried all sorts of hysterics. She would scream in these random outbursts. She would rock back and forth and just put on this total show. But the judge was not buying it, and he sentenced her to life in prison without the chance of parole. She was actually the first woman in Australia to receive this sentence, which in Australia is, which in Australia is the harshest sentence. To this day, Catherine has not talked about what happened that night. In 2006, she tried to appeal her sentence by saying that her life sentence was too severe for the crime that she committed. But the judge was like, girl, you are staying put. (laughs) That was the absolute craziest ending to a domestic abuse relationship I've ever heard. So it is absolutely absurd um, and extreme, extremely gory. I think, though... My final thoughts here are just that relationships like this do exist. They don't always end this way, but there are a lot of relationships where women are the manipulative, cunning abusers in a relationship, and that doesn't get talked talked about as much as guys being the, the abusive ones. And I'm sure that it's probably more common for the male to be the aggressor, but I know of relationships where women were essentially psychopaths and treated men like shit. And so I feel like this just goes to show like how, you know, she was able to get away with this for so long. And I assume it's probably because she, she proclaimed that she was acting in self-defense or that, you know, so-and-so was actually abusing her. And so I don't know. I feel like there's this double standard when it comes to relationships, especially domestic abuse relationships, because, you know, people don't always assume that the woman woman has anything to do with it, but sometimes they do. Yeah, I think it's similar to, like, the double standard is similar to the teacher's banging students thing. Yeah. You know, guy bangs student and uh, or girl bangs student. And it's like one way is more, in a way, socially acceptable, which I know sounds really wrong, but you, you get the point. Yeah. Uh, they're both horrible. This is 
domestic abuse is just like wild and it's really sad how people continue to go back to these relationships and um, seek some sort of some sort of like I don't know validation and or just they're that brainwashed brainwashed and in love or whatever and they and a lot of people want like they subconsciously seek to fix people mm-hmm. and it's just super strange but that's or they're so easily manipulated into thinking someone can change because they can say all the right things yeah. and ultimately what it comes down to is that you never really know what a person is thinking when they're being abused until you're in those type of shoes and I'm lucky enough to have never been in an abusive relationship, so I can't speak on what that person is going through. I can express my confusion when I'm reading about these men who are going back to her time and time again after going through these violent attacks, mm-hmm. um, and then they go back, and it's like, what the hell? Yeah, but, but, uh, men or women, but it just like grasps hope. I mean, it's, it's I don't know, it's freaking weird. Yeah. It's sad. It happens every minute of every day somewhere Mm -hmm. this chick was just absolutely a nutcase and was going to eat him with mashed potatoes and gravy yikes big yikes freaking weird apparently she is um you know in prison she's like a church goer she goes every sunday and she's known to be like a bad bitch amongst her other inmates i'm sure she probably is because they're probably fearing for their lives sheesh they probably don't want to cross her, and I wouldn't either. So have with a that, great week, everybody. <laughs> Mama, mystery out. Bye. Hey, y'all crazy bitch, but you fuck so good. I'm on top of it when I dream. I'm doing you all night. Stretches all down my back to keep me right on. Hey, y'all crazy bitch, but you fuck so good. I'm on top of it when I dream. I'm doing you all night. Stretches all down my back to keep me right on.